your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We will continue our study in Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. So as I, I shared with you last time, the book of Hebrews, or the letter to the Hebrew Christians, is, is written to just that. It's written to a group of believers who are really second-generation believers, if you will. They're the first generation that got to hear from the apostles, and they are the first generation of believers that were Jewish, that saw the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophets fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so they, they saw what all previous generations of Jewish followers of Yahweh had longed for. They had longed for this Messiah. All through the Old Testament, there's these little foreshadows, there's these little breadcrumbs, if you will, of God showing the nation, here's what I'm getting ready to do. And many of them had ideas about what the Messiah would look like and, and how he would come on the scene. And unfortunately, because of what we tend to do as human beings, as we read things into Scripture that it doesn't say, they had the wrong idea about the Messiah. But there were those Jews, those Israelites that were not in the upper echelon. Many of them didn't have much financially. Many of them had been broken. They'd been burned by religion. They had burned by the, the rulers in the temple who had lorded it over them. And because of that, they, they came to this understanding. They were like, you know, Jesus really is everything that, that the Old Testament pointed to. And so as guys like Paul and Apollos and some of these messianic Jews, we might call them, that, that actually believed that Jesus was the Mashiach, the anointed one, the, the king that God would send as himself, they saw him and his ministry and all he had to say and all that he did, and they said, this is the Messiah. This is the one that God was pointing to. And so they believed, but here's the deal. I believe that every person that takes a stand and says, I'm going to follow Jesus, no turning back, sing the old hymn. Every one of us is tempted to go back to where we came from. Every one of us has, as soon as we're like, I'm going to follow Jesus, I don't care who says what. And then things get better, things get easier, and then we kind of go and we go, you know, I really kind of miss having this or that going on in my life. And, and we start to kind of long for the things that we actually used to find a lot of peace and joy in that God didn't have for us. And so because we've tasted those things, sometimes we long for that, that taste again. I don't want to go headlong into it, Lord. I just want to go try it one more time. And, and for the Jewish people, it wasn't, for the beer at barbecue, uh, for it wasn't for the rave party or what you know whatever you were into. For the Jewish people, it was actually they just they missed the taste and the smells and going to the temple and walking an animal up there to to know that they were making a sacrifice before God that made a literal aroma and a smoke of barbecue up before the presence of the Lord, and they could see the the high priest go into the holy of holies and pray for him or her. And, and now all these things that they were doing by sight that were all foreshadows of what we now get to do by faith in Christ, they, they no longer got to touch them and taste them and smell them. And, and for them, it was just like everything they ever knew, they were being divorced from it. These things that they took comfort in, that they knew that God told them to do, and they would do them religiously in all the right ways even. All of a sudden, this has been fulfilled in Christ. We don't need a high priest. We don't need to trust angels. We don't need to look for, you know, whatever the thing is. Where you, we don't have to go make a sacrifice. We don't have to go to a specific place that the Holy Spirit now dwells in us. We are the temple. 
of the Holy Spirit. And so these things that they were used to, they had a longing to go back to. And so they were really no different than us, I guess is the point I want to make. So on the next slide I have for you there, as we talked about uh, last week, I, I shared with you the five, I would call them uncomfortable warnings of Hebrews. People arm wrestle over these warnings. But remember that the book of Hebrews is written to believers. These are professed, born-again Christians. So the warning is, yes, you're saved, but you need to be diligent to remain in the faith. And so he says there, uh, be careful that you don't drift from the word. Don't neglect the word. And that's what we're going to look at today. In chapter 3 and 4, he says, be careful that you don't get a hard heart and start to doubt what the word says. Number three, he says in chapter 5 and 6, don't become dull towards the word of God. And the word that I have for you there is sluggish or lazy listeners. You know, the word of God is very clear but sometimes there's mysteries, even Paul writes about, he says, this is the mystery of godliness. That doesn't mean that it's something we just can't know. You know, when people say God works in mysterious ways, sometimes they're just saying, they, they, what they mean is not that he can be found out his ways, his ways can be found out to us. What they mean is we just can't ever know. But I disagree with that because God's ways are mysterious, but anybody knows that if you've ever gotten into watching mysteries or reading mysteries, it's because the answers can be found out because they are going to be at the end. That's kind of what dangles the carrot so we can get to the end of it and find out who done it, right? And so in the same way, God's word is that way. And he says, be careful that you don't start to despise the word. And this is all a process. This is a pattern. When you drift from the word, you start to doubt the word, and then you become dull of hearing, and then you start to despise the word, and then you start to defy the word. And so that's going to be kind of the, the outline for the book of Hebrews. But today, in chapter 1, on the next slide, I have for you that as we read last week, Jesus is greater than all of the things that we long to go back to. For the Hebrew Christians, their religion, all the stuff that they were used to, Jesus is better than all of it. I don't care how many times you go to the temple and smell the smells and see the sights and get to have the high priest pray for you and, and all the things that they long for, what he's going to write to them is Jesus is better than all those things. And so he's going to make a case for that. He's going to go through it like a lawyer would, breaking down every piece. And I will do my best to make it not like a trial or a boring lawyer proceeding. You know, I won't make it like Judge Judy where everybody wants, yeah, get him. But, but I also, I'll, I'll try to make it interesting. It is very interesting, but for us, the application does not come from us longing to go back to another re Jewish religion. It might be longing to go back to the group of friends that we miss. It might be longing to go back to the music that we miss. It might be longing to go back to the, the places we used to hang out. It might be longing to go back to, basically, wasn't it easier before I was a Christian? Here's the reality. Sometimes it is. It was easier before you were a Christian. But that's because you, you didn't care. It wasn't because life was easier. It was just because... It was simpler because you just did whatever was right at the moment for you. And so um, that was actually harder than you remember, by the way. Being a slave to your own desires will wear you out. Many of you know that as Christians. Being a slave to your own desires makes you get off of a weekend and go, man, I did everything I wanted, and now I'm exhausted. Send me back to work. You know, I've, I've had weekends like that. So here we are. He says Jesus is greater 
And in today's passage, he's going to say Jesus is greater than angels. Now, many of us might go, well, what does that matter at all? Well, I'm going to let, let you know why that matters to the Jewish believers. So it's important that we review the word of God to find out why Jesus being better than the angels is important so that we have a solid foundation for our faith. So here's the deal. The, the Hebrew Christians, they would know this if they would not neglect the scriptures. And that's the main point I want to make today. He's going to give all these scriptures for why Jesus is better than the angels. But for them, everything about their faith was centered around angels. You may not recognize it, but at the giving of the law, it says in scripture that the angels actually were the messengers that delivered it. Moses went on up on the mountain. He met with God and, and, and the smoke and the, the lightning and and the people of Israel were like, you know what? We don't want to go up there. That looks scary. Why don't you go up there for us, Moses? And Moses said, okay. The Lord accepted him up there. He was up there for 40 days. He received the word. And when he came back down and he told it to them, there were some other things that happened. But he said, here's the word that God presented. And they said, we will follow it. Don't worry about us. We'll do everything you say. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, did they follow it from that day forward? Absolutely not. They had some really good strides at it, but they, they were failures. And, and that's okay, because God knew they would fail at their people. That's why he was still going to fulfill the law by sending Jesus. But the examples from Scripture that they were familiar with as converted Jews is the way he's going to communicate to them these truths. That he's not just going to say, I think that God is, Jesus is better than the angels, and here's why I think that. No, he's going to point them back to something that they've carried with them from as small children. He's going to point them back to the Old Testament scriptures. So in chapter 1 of Hebrews, he says this in verse 1. We're going to read back through the three verses that I covered last week. He says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he is by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. So, he continues on from verse 4, having said, as Jesus has become so much better than the angels, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, what's in a name? What's in a name? We all have names, right? Many of us named our children because we either had someone they were related to that we really liked and we wanted them to be like that person, or sometimes it's what the name means itself. You know, for us, we named Lucy Light. Now, Lucy means light, so we named her Light. We wanted her to be a light to her generation. God of the world, he's the light of the world, right? Jesus. And then Judah, we named him Judah because Judah means praise. It means thankfulness, contentment. And so we want our son to be someone who leads others in praise and in any way that God wants to. And we want him to be someone who is thankful and content. So what is a name? He says there, he has by inheritance 
obtained a more excellent name than the angels. Well, what is in our name is really what makes us who we are. It's our character. Now, you can have a last name that many times people are like, I don't want to have that last name because so-and-so has that last name and everybody thinks of that person, right? We all have those names. I don't care what family you're from, there's somebody in your family that disgraces your name, whatever it might be, you know? But the reality is, is that our name kind of goes before us and people know us and they know just our name, even if they don't know us, they make assumptions about us. And so Jesus' name, Yeshua, Joshua, is the Lord, is our salvation. And he, in fact, is the Lord, our salvation. And so he's obtained a, great, a greater name than they, and not only that, but he is the Son of God. And so his name is it's synonymous with God himself. And everything that he did, he did uh, agreeing with and, and obeying the word of the Father. So he goes on to have this Old Testament reference of a chapter where he says, For to which of the angels did he, God, ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So he quotes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and he says, to whom did, the, did he ever say to the angels, you are my son? And he never said that to any of the angels, not even the highest of the angels that we get to see, like Michael, that's mentioned in the, the book of Jude. They, they have names, but they are not the son of God. They are created beings, by the way. Angels are created beings. And it appears to me that they had one opportunity to choose whether to follow and obey the commandments of God or to rebel against God. And so we see the fallen angels, or a third, went with Satan, and they followed Lucifer. Now, isn't it interesting that the name Lucifer means luminous one, and Lucy means light? That scares me sometimes. You know, I commented one time that actually we named Judah, and the, the name that kind of is close to that is Judas, so that's not good either. But any name can go either way, right? We have choice. And so the angels were no different. But it seems that they don't, like the sons of men, get multiple times and multiple times to repent. They had one opportunity. Choose this day whom you will follow for them meant this day and this day only. This is a going out of business sale. And they, following Satan, have no opportunity to come back. They don't have the grace that we've been offered to us. And so angels even aren't treated as well as we are. Think about that. And so he says, whoever said, God never said to them, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And he's referencing 2 Samuel chapter 7. So on the next slide I have for you there, what he's going to basically break down, uh, I skipped ahead of my own notes, look at that. Go to the next slide. According to scripture, and he's going to go through these points, He's the son, verse 4 and 5. Verse 6, he's going to make a case for the fact that Scripture says the firstborn actually doesn't just come along and do the will of the Father, but he actually receives worship. He's commanded to be worshipped by the angels. That's interesting to me. And then verse 7, angels serve him. They're his servants. And then verse 8 and 9, Jesus is enthroned he is, sits on the throne of God, and he is anointed. 
like the Old Testament kings, were anointed by the oil as a sign of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon them to lead God's people. And then verse 10 through 12, he's the eternal creator. Verse 13 through 14, Christ is king, and the angels are servants to him. So since I've gotten ahead of myself, I'm going to go back a slide, and I'm going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 33. I know many of you spend your devotional time in the book of Deuteronomy, so this will be review for you. But in case you're like me, and you don't spend a ton of time in Deuteronomy, I want to point this out, because he goes back to Moses, and in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, Actually, in verse 1, it says, Now this is the blessing, blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. The book of Deuteronomy, the theme is, it's the second telling of the law. You ever get tired of repeating yourself to your kids? Well, do it, because it's a godly thing to do. God himself repeats himself to his children. He's already given them the law from, through Moses in Exodus and in Leviticus. But then in Numbers... We see that they wander, and then in Deuteronomy, we see that God tells them again, here's my laws. And in this retelling of the law, it says here that Moses blessed the, the children of God from God, and he said, the Lord came from Sinai, and he dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of his saints from his right hand, came a fiery law for them. The law being delivered to them, and it says ten thousands of his saints. The word saints there actually means holy ones or angels. So when he comes and he delivers this law, he doesn't just do it and send little Moses down there. He actually sends them off the law to Moses, but he takes ten thousands of his saints, essentially ascribing authority to this law that they're delivering. If you think about it, a king comes into another nation, he comes with what? His army. He shows up and he says, I'm setting up my authority, and he does that with uh, the authority, but he also does it with his strength. And so the angels are servants of God, and in Acts chapter 7, um, if you turn there with me, it actually uh, gives us an example of where a New Testament saint refers to this very giving of the law, and it's actually interesting because it's this the first martyr in the New Testament church, it's Stephen. And Stephen is there contesting with the religious leaders, and, and they are actually getting so infuriated by his testimony. Scripture says that his, his face had a, a Shekinah glory to it, that as he shared these truths with the, the, the people that were his enemies, and he gave this testimony, that his face shone, and in verse 51 it actually says, uh, Stephen speaking, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. I bet that went over well. <laughs> Whoa, letting it rip. But this isn't the first thing he said, by the way. He had spent a couple of minutes. If you read through what Stephen had to say, he gives the Old Testament history. He gives a survey to them. He reveals Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures. And then at the very end is where he comes along and he says, you guys are stiff-necked. You're like... Uh, we're trying to tell you things that God wants us to tell you, and you will not listen. He says, you stiff-necked, and you uncircumcised in heart and in ears. They were always boasting in how we're of the circumcision. We're Jewish people. We're God's people. And he says, your circumcision doesn't mean anything if you're not sensitive to the voice of God. 
Your being baptized as a believer means nothing. You can't boast in it if you don't listen to God today. Your unwillingness to listen to God is actually uncircumcision, is what he's telling them. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels, and yet you've not kept it. So there, just, you know, sometimes you read scripture for what the point is of what they're telling you, but sometimes even in what godly people are saying, there's a truth in there that maybe we'd miss. What he said there is that they received the law by the direction of angels. Now, think about angels in the nation of Israel. Many times God delivered them by angels. There was one night where King Hezekiah was overwhelmed. There was a siege around his city. I referred to it a couple weeks ago. And as the siege was going about, Hezekiah took the letter of his enemy and laid it out before the Lord and said, this is what they're saying about us. This is what they're saying they're going to do to us. And God sent one angel and destroyed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Now, so the law comes in, and he says he sends ten thousands of his angels. Wow, power. So you could see why they might ascribe a lot of victory and power to the angels instead of to the God that directs them, right? Angels are important in their religion. Think about uh, the book of Judges, where Samson is getting ready to be born, and, and the, the message comes to Samson's parents. You're going to have a child, and he's going to be a Nazarite from birth. Who tells them that? An angel of the Lord. And so there's all these times where angels played this huge role in revealing things to the people of God. And so now you could see why they might have an opportunity to accidentally or purposely start to worship the angel instead of the creator of the angels. And in Galatians chapter 3, on this same theme, he speaks of, I can't talk and turn pages, apparently. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Paul, writing, says this. What purpose, then, does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So it seems like, even though we may not have caught on to that as Gentiles, it seems like every Jewish believer has a pretty strong grasp on the fact that angels were involved with the delivering of the law. And so he's needing to correct them. So the letter to the Hebrews focuses on the superiority of Jesus Christ over the law of Moses. Therefore, it's important to address Jesus' superiority over the messengers who delivered that same law. So now that I've stopped uh, getting ahead of myself, let's go back to the passage in Hebrews chapter 1. And then on the next slide, I have there for you the, the breakdown. But uh, we're just going to hit a couple of these for time's sake. But he says, as we read the overview, he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I've begotten you? The answer, none of them. He says, To which of the angels did he ever say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? None of them. Now, what you got to know about Old Testament prophecy is that there is a a, a near telling for every prophet that spoke he was speaking something to the people that were around him right then but there are also new testament 
understandings because the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. It's Jesus concealed in all the God's dealings with the nation of Israel. But in the New Testament, we have the revealing of those things. So as we read the book of Hebrews, we see these Old Testament scriptures being applied to Jesus. They were about Jesus, even though those prophets that spoke them many times had no idea what they were even talking about. And I love this because God can speak through anybody. We were talking about this morning how he spoke through a donkey. In the book of Numbers, he, he, God spoke through a donkey. He, he actually stopped a man from cursing the nation of Israel by speaking through a donkey. And so, I don't know about you guys, but that encourages me. <laughs> Maybe that's not you. Maybe you don't equate yourself, but sometimes I get up here and I say things, and I think, what, what did I say? But God can speak through a donkey, so you're good. Just trust him, you know. He knows you. He knows what you're going to say, and he's going to cut, you know, he's going to take care of that. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, verse 6, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, I got ahead of myself. There I am. Back there in verse 5, he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So the point of saying that it has an, uh, an application right then to the audience, but also to us, is that this application is talking about Jesus, but when it was spoken in 2 Samuel, it was actually God speaking to King David about his son Solomon. So you can imagine that the Hebrew scholars would be reading this book and go, well, that was about Solomon. So wait a minute, it was about Jesus? Which is interesting to me because Solomon means peace. He was a king during his time of peace. King of peace. Who is our king of peace? It's Jesus. But you don't get that unless you dig a little bit. It's a mystery. And so here he goes again in verse 6, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And the angel, and to, of the angels, God says, he makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So the idea is that he makes his angels like wind, and his ministers a flame of fire. They, they are at his beck and call. He calls them to worship Jesus, but then he also uses them as his servants. He, you ever see Minions? You know, you got Gru, and he's this weird Eastern Bloc-sounding guy. I don't know what nationality he is, and he's got these little yellow dudes. Don't, don't, don't look down on me, but I actually watched that movie where there's one called Minions. It's just called Minions. And it shows you like the history of where Minions came from in the first place. I will not get that two hours of my life back. <laughs> but they somehow, for some reason, speak something that sounds like French, but like butchered with English and then mixed in with nonsense. And they all know what each other are saying. And then Guru knows what they're saying. I don't know. Maybe I've spent too much time on that. But my point is, is that he has Minions, right? And the minions don't tell Gru what to do, you know? And we have bosses, and we don't get to tell our bosses many times what to do. God's no different. Jesus is Lord, and creation is subject to what he says to do. Creation never questions God. Angels never question God. And if they do, they go follow Satan, which means against God, you know? So, and yet God in his mercy and in his grace, he allows us to respond to him with questions. 
Did you ever notice that when you question God, he doesn't strike you dead? Wow. We would expect that many times our bosses would fire us for back-talking. And many times my children talk back to me, and I don't strike them down, but I definitely don't let them talk back. And yet the creator of all, he, he shows us this grace and mercy that we, I really don't think we get how much grace and mercy he shows us daily. I really don't think, because if we did, we, we would literally pray on our knees. We would literally raise our hands and say, thank you, Lord, for not smoking me. Because if you really think about your past, if I, when I think about mine, wow, I should have been smoked early on. <laughs> when it got worse, he still didn't smoke me. And, and, and I still don't understand why Christians don't worship God for being God. I don't understand. And, and there, uh, there goes me. I'm the same way. How do I not have an awe and reverence for God that causes me to feel bad when I fall asleep praying to Him? And yet He doesn't care. He just delights to have time with us. And so, what a loving Father. But, look at this. Going on, verse 8, He says to the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. A scepter is what they would hand a king as they, as they proclaimed him. This is your new king. The scepter was, a, a, uh, was something he would hold that would signify he has authority. You'd get the scepter, and then you'd get the signet ring. If you used the ring, that was your signature, saying, I represent the kingdom. You would seal packages with it. You would seal decrees with it. It, it was before the days of writing things down. They'd take a piece of clay or something, and they would, they would put the insignia... You know, and, and it would seal a package. It would secure delivery to wherever you would send it. People respected just that signature. And the scepter was a, a sign that this man is the authority of that kingdom. And so he says to his son, your throne, O God. He says to, your, to his son, your throne, O God, calling him God. It's almost like he's got multiple personalities. It was just like we looked at Genesis last week that he said, let us make man in our image He's not saying there's multiple gods, but he's Elohim. He's God, one God, three persons, three manifestations. And so we see this again. He's speaking to himself in the Godhead. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. I love this. He says your throne is forever and ever. Who can reign forever but someone who is outside of time, who is not created, who does not have a beginning and an end? A human being could not reign forever. And then he says, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. He gets his authority from God himself, being God. With the oil of gladness, more than your companion, companions, he has anointed you. So he's quoting from Psalm chapter 45, through verse 6 through 7. And, verse 10, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Again, pointing to not only is he creator, or excuse me, not as only is he, he better than the angels, but he's also um, a king, but he is also the creator. He created the foundations. He was there, Jesus. He says, they will perish. Speaking of the heavens, speaking of the foundation of the earth, they will perish 
but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. Speaking to his eternal kingdom. And he, even in this passage, whether you realize it or not, he's speaking of creation. The heavens and the earth wearing out. That they are actually being exhausted. That the second law of thermodynamics says that, that things that, that, you know, like when you fuel up your car, you know when you, by the time you drive to Farmington, you're going to have less fuel than when you started. You also know that the ball bearings are going to get worn down. You also know that you know, your body is a picture of that too. That we run out of life. That there's a finite amount. And yet what it says there about God, what it says about Jesus, is that um, He will remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. Your year, you won't run out of years. God does not die. But to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Answer, none. He never said that to the angels. He said that to Jesus. Sit at my right hand, which is the hand of power. We talked about that in verse 3 last week. And he says, till I make your enemies your footstool. He's quoting from Psalm chapter 110, and we're going to turn there real quickly. Psalm 110, a messianic psalm. It's okay, I'm slow too. Psalms is easier to find because there's so many pages of it, but it's still hard. I need to get my wife to help me with my Bible drill skills. Psalm 110, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. And the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, the Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. But then again, he's just pointing out that this is the announcement of the Messiah's reign. This is not the reign that we experience right now. Jesus is the king of a kingdom. We are all a part of this invisible kingdom. But there will be a day where the heavens and the earth will be worn out. Jesus is going to say, this is the day. He's going to take what, like we would when we, if you're an artist, you draft something and you go, that's not it. And you take the piece of paper, you ball it up and you throw it in the trash can. That's what he's going to do with the heavens and the earth. Not with the people, but with the creation itself. And he's actually going to bring down a new heaven. And a new earth. Isaiah speaks about this. And he's actually going to set up a new kingdom. And a new rule and a reign. And all authorities, all people will be subject to his rule and reign. And so that's what he's speaking about in Psalm 
1.10. So he says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So what's interesting is, as you look at the life of Jesus, look at the example that the angels are. Angels announce his getting ready to be conceived in Mary. Mary was told by angels, you're going to be conceived of the Holy Spirit. And then we see Jesus is baptized, and then he goes into the wilderness for a time of temptation. And it says there at the end of his temptation that he was ministered to or served by angels. They actually strengthened him as he waited upon his father. And then we go forward to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is there praying, Lord, uh, if there's any other way that mankind can receive salvation, then please uh, make that happen. But not my will, Father, but yours be done. And it says that he prayed that three times in submission to the Father, knowing that he was getting ready to be brutally murdered for mankind's sin, right? But it says the third time, Luke, Dr. Luke writes down that he was so distressed in prayer that he actually sweat great drops of blood. It was a condition of stress that those with a medical background could actually describe. It's a real thing. You can become so stressed that you not only sweat, but that your sweat and your blood mixes together and the corpuscles, or whatever the word is, allow it to come out of your skin and you will bleed because you're so stressed. So Jesus did that. But what it says is after he prayed and surrendered to the Father, that angels once again came and ministered to him in that time. They served him. And I find that interesting because here we are, we have Jesus surrendering, and yet angels are involved in every aspect of his life. And when he's on the cross, and they mocked him, and they said, he, others he could save, but he can't save himself. But what we find out is that at any moment, he could have called for 10,000 angels to deliver him. And actually, there in the garden, before he gets to the cross, Peter speaks up and says, I'm going to save you, Jesus, and takes a knife and cuts the ear off of the servant of the high priest, and he heals him, and he looks at Peter and rebukes him, and he says, hey, you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And then he says, don't you know that if, if I wanted to, I could call all of the angels, and they would deliver it. One, just one legion. But we know it would just take one. But he has at his disposal this army that we cannot see. And that's where we get our ideas of guardian angels and don't drive faster than your guardian angel can fly and all the things that we buy for our kids and put on, you know, my, I think my grandma or somebody bought me one of those. And it was like, it went on my visor in my, my SS Monte Carlo. Um, and then I'd look at it and go, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> You know, but the reality of angels is something we can't see. There's a heavenly battle going on. And we get visions and glimpses of this in the book of Daniel, where Daniel is on his knees and he's praying and fasting for three weeks. And then at the end of this fasting, he gets a vision from the Lord. But the angel tells him, I'm sorry I would have been here sooner, but I was, I was kept back. Kept back by the angels of darkness, the fallen angels. There's a battle between Michael, the archangel, and, and Satan, it seems. And and because of that, the prayers were not hindered or stopped, but definitely slowed down the message. And so, that said, we come to our conclusion. He's made his point, right? Angels are great. They're awesome. Man, but the God who created them and Jesus himself is way better. 
he is the king. He's the ruler of the angels, as a matter of fact. And in chapter 2, we get this little, unfortunately, because of us putting chapter and verse divisions, sometimes we think, well, I'm at the end of the chapter, I'm at the end of the thought. But men put those there, God didn't. That's just so we can quote chapter and verse. That's just so we have a reference point. It's like page numbers. But in chapter 2, he, he says, therefore. So he, he's referring to all the things, therefore, because of this case I've made for you, of all these scriptures that you've known from birth, he says, therefore, we, and he includes himself in that. I think that's interesting and important. He says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we've heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, meaning trustworthy, and he says there, every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. This law that he presented with ten thousands of his saints, it was steadfast, it was true. So if that word was true and steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, meaning punishment for sin, verse 3 says, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. If the message delivered through angels proved to be trustworthy, proved to be something to lay our lives on and to trust for salvation and for forgiveness. How will we escape so great a salvation which was spoken by the Lord himself? If the message sent by God's messengers was true, how can we not trust God himself to be the messenger? And Jesus being the captain of our salvation, the first fruit of those who are risen from the dead. It's interesting to me because it says there in... Uh, in verse 6, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. He's not speaking about the day that Jesus was born. He's actually speaking about the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. The day that Jesus was raised from the dead is the day that, that God looks at him as truly being born. Isn't that interesting? And yet we, being born of the flesh, he says, if anyone will see the kingdom of God, we must be what? born again. And so Jesus being the captain of that. And so how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So on the next slide for you, I was thinking about this this morning, and I was trying to figure out how to wrap it up, and then Pastor Mike or whoever at Parkland Chapel shared this, this photo this morning. And it's a quote from uh, Francis Chan. And it says this, we never grow closer to God when we just live life. It takes deliberate pursuit and attentiveness. How many people grow closer to God by just letting it happen, right? We often think that about walking with Jesus. Hey, Jesus is just going to do everything, and he does. He's the captain of our faith. He's the salvation. He is the beginning and the end. And yet, what we find out is that these believers long to go back because they didn't know about the angels from the scriptures that they knew. They knew the scriptures, but they didn't know what the scriptures were teaching them. And I think that is the key to why they long to go back. 
They hadn't peered deeply into the salvation they had obtained. They missed out on the simple, beautiful truths in the Word. And so, don't neglect the Word of God. That's what I have for you this morning. Don't neglect it. It's one thing to read it. It's one thing to aspire to read it. But I think sometimes, and I've been guilty of this, we can read it every day and still neglect it. And because of that, we can start to drift through life. I don't know about you guys, but there are seasons of my life. I'm, go, I'm looking at things right now going, it's fall already? How did that happen? I wonder how, many of that, how much of that caught me by surprise because I've been drifting rather than intentionally taking step by step, soberly walking through life. So in Ephesians chapter 5, that's where I'll close, I promise. I've said that before. Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. And in chapter 5, verse 15, he says this, See then that you walk circumspectly, that word means wise and soberly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because, guess what, the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Where does wisdom come from? the fear of the Lord. Where does faith come from? By hearing the word of God. So that's all I have for you this morning. Father,